Greetings, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, November the 7th, and I hope that this Daylight Savings Sunday finds you and yours doing well. We continue our study of First and Second Thessalonians. Today we look at chapter 4, verses 16, backing up just a few verses through the first 11 verses of chapter 5 of First Thessalonians. I'm going to read from the ESV version. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers. For that day to surprise you like a thief, you're not in darkness, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So our study here in the fifth chapter of of 1 Thessalonians also deals with the fate of the earth, but from God's point of view. So unlike the pessimism of secular prophets, there's a strong note of hope against the darkness and the judgment that it predicts. The, the, The closing verses of chapter four dealt with the second coming, the parousia. Of Christ. We learn there that Christians are not waiting for the judgments and wrath of God, but for the coming of the Son of God. Either at their personal death, when we die, we, we have Jesus' coming to us, or breaking into time in the event described in chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, shall be called up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's 16 and 17 from the RSV. So Paul now continues this this same subject in chapter five, and he introduces it with the word, but, B-U-T. And this is important because when we come on the word, but in scripture, it means that we're turning a corner. The the same subject is going to be covered, but from a different perspective, a different direction. And beginning in chapter five, so Paul continues with the same thought, as the closing verses of chapter four, but as the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need to have anything written to you for you yourselves know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come on them. And, and as they travail, a great word in the RSV travail comes on a woman with child and there will be no escape. 
the phrase the times and the seasons indicates that Paul is coming to grips with the question of the time of the Lord's return. All of us seem to want a date. We want to circle it in the calendar. But Paul had taught the Thessalonians that they would not know the date precisely. But he does say to them, concerning the time, you have no need to have anything written to you. That is because they had been reading in the Old Testament about the day of the Lord, and the description and the characteristics of that day were familiar to them. This is the first mention in the letter of the phrase, the day of the Lord. And as we've already seen, it's very important to understand that it's not just a single 24-hour day. Rather, it's an extended length of time covering several events over a period of possibly seven years. The whole, the whole period beginning called the parousia or the presence of Christ. When Christ returns, he will remain on earth for this period. And so the day of the Lord is a series of events, perhaps even extending into the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ that follows. Actually, the phrase day of the Lord refers to any period of time. When God acts directly and unmistakably in human affairs, it may be in blessing as in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, or it may be in judgment. It may be that the same event will be a judgment to some people and blessing to others. In this case, Paul says, you do not need to have have anyone tell you about the times and the seasons. That is also what Jesus had said. And that mysterious period of time when he was risen from the dead and appearing with his disciples on occasion and then disappearing again during one of those appearances, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's Acts chapter one, verse six. They were asking, is this the time when you will fulfill the predictions of the prophets that Israel will be the chief of the nations and the Messiah will reign personally on the earth? Here's the Lord's amazing answer to their question. It's not for you to know the times or reasons. It's the same phrase, which right here, which the father has fixed by his own authority as chapter one of Acts verse seven. In other words, only the father knew the answer to their question. Then Jesus went on to outline to them the program that would affect them. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We must understand that though we cannot name the precise date when, the, when Jesus, when our Lord will appear and begin the day of the Lord, there are three characteristics of that day that we can look for and understand. The first characteristic of the, of the day of the Lord, says Paul, is that it will come stealthily. It will come like a thief in the night. The Lord will come stealthily, Paul says, at a time when peace and security seem to prevail, when nothing out of the ordinary is expected. That is how the day of the Lord begins. This is not just Paul's idea. Jesus said the exact same thing in Luke 17, 26, and 27. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, They married, they were given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Is there something wrong about eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage? No, that is normal, everyday life. But, says Jesus, in the moment when everything seems to be proceeding normally, suddenly the destructive judgment of God will fall. And that judgment is introduced, as Jesus points out very clearly here, by the removal of the family of God from the earth. Until the day when Noah entered the ark, the flood came, 
and destroyed them all. Luke 17, 26 through 27. Jesus didn't stop there. He went on to say, likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built normal everyday life. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and brimstone rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the son of man is revealed. That's Luke 17, 28 through 30. We see how clearly Jesus indicates in both of these examples. He uses that he, the, these examples that there's a quiet disappearance of the family of God first, like a thief at work, silently, stealthily, the treasure is taken away. Then secondly, the judgment comes, Matthew 24, what's called the Olivet Discourse, the Olivet Discourse. Jesus adds these words about that event. Then two men will be in the field. One is taken and one is left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One is taken, one is left. That's Matthew 24, 40 through 41. Parallel passage in Luke reads, two men will be asleep and one in bed, one will be taken and the other one left. The fact that two men are asleep means that it's nighttime. And yet two women grinding at the mill do so in daylight. That indicates that this selective taking away happens all over the earth at once. When it is daytime in one place, it's nighttime in another. One will be taken, others will be left. Jesus then adds these words, watch then. For you you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the householder had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, here Jesus also calls this a thief-like coming, he would have watched and would not have let his house be broken into. So therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Matthew 24, 42 through 44. Scripture teaches that the day of the Lord begins with the removal of God's people. Then judgment breaks out on the earth. Its second characteristic is that it's a terrible destructive judgment. Sudden destruction will come, Paul says. The Old Testament gives many warnings of this. And, and as the Thessalonians had come to understand when they read the descriptions of the day of the Lord, the prophecy of Joel, for instance, says, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds, thick darkness, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Isaiah 2 says a word of the same effect. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and high. In that day, men will cast forth their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they've made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliff from before the terror of the Lord and from the glory of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. And again, the prophecy of Zephaniah, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the Lord is the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that, that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against fortified cities and against lofty battlements. And all of this is summed up in the words which Jesus said on the Mount of Olives, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. Matthew 24, 21. Listen, it's incredibly hard to preach 
to talk about passages like that. If I'm honest, I don't even like to read them. But they represent a reality. And the one thing that we need to face exactly is what God says is going to happen. Here is the indeed the fate of the earth. And as a third characteristic, third characteristic, excuse me, it is inescapable, says says Paul. They shall not escape. He likens it, compares it to a woman in travail. There's that great word again. One of whose time for giving birth has come. When a woman is in quote unquote travail, she cannot change her mind. It is too late for anything but to go through with childbirth. And that's what Paul's highlighting. The world cannot escape the terrible judgments of God. That is a sobering thought. The only way we can handle it is to find the means of escape, which are provided for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In connection to this, C.S. Lewis writes, God is going to invade this earth in force. But what is the good of saying you are on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream in something else, something it never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. It's very important that we understand that God's delay of this event is because God is a loving God. And it is to give people a chance to see what is happening in our lives and to choose the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, O Lord. After this terrible picture of gloom and darkness, verse 4 turns another corner, and it too begins with the word, but. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You're not in darkness, for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4-5. Here Paul is indicating that there will be some who will not go through this time of trouble. There is a way of escape. There is hope. There is good news for this hour. Here are reasons he gives why true believers will not go through the tribulation. And also verses 9 and 10 add further light to this. For God has not destined us for wrath, the time of wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we wake or sleep, we might live with him. The only hope for any individual, for any of us, is to turn to the Lord Jesus and to rely on the value of his death and resurrection. That's what Paul calls becoming a child of light and not of darkness. 
for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. And in Colossians 1, he says, we, we believers have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son. Also, we have been given knowledge and truth. The word of God tells us exactly what will happen and confirms it by the prophecies which have been fulfilled through the centuries. In this connection, I I think often what a wonderful promise in, in the third chapter of Revelation, which is given to the church of Philadelphia, because you have kept my word of patient endurance. In other words, the word of God, you have begun to run your life according to my word, and I will keep you from the hour of trial, which is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth, Revelation 3.10. For this reason, Paul can say here, God has not destined us for wrath. If we trust in Jesus, if we have been born again by the Holy Spirit, if we believe his word and are growing by it, then we are not destined for wrath, but to escape, to escape this terrible time of judgment, just as Noah and Lot escaped the judgments which fell in their day. And the second reason Paul gives is that we might live with him. That's how he puts it here. Whether we we wake or sleep, we might live with him. Those are wonderful words, which he closes chapter 4. So we shall always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, the second part of verse 17. And I I want to tie this briefly to 2 Peter 1, verses 16 and 18. It's a passage that's not usually connected with this. But here Peter is referring to the time when he, James and John, were invited by the Lord to accompany him to the Mount of Transfiguration. And it says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the word parousia, the coming, the presence. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is saying that in the, in the remarkable way of teaching that, that God has, that this transfiguration scene was a preview of the parousia of the Lord, that Jesus would come and be related to people as he was related to those who were with him on the mountain that day. And Peter goes on to say, for when he received honor and glory from God, the father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We heard that voice voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. It's God's way of teaching us the relationship of believers in that day. Moses, who was present with Elijah, was a resurrected saint. It's amazing. It's amazing. So in the second coming of our Lord, there will be those who are raised from the dead, joining with those who are alive and remain. Translated, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And then too, Moses and Elijah represent those kinds of saints. With them are three ordinary, ordinary men, ordinary dudes, Peter, James, and John. And so during the tribulation and during the millennium that follows, there will be resurrected saints and translated saints living with with, with just simple people on the earth. And the scene is a preview of that. And at the center, the focus of, of all attention, the risen, glorified, and transfigured Lord himself. And that is God's picture of the fate of the earth. As we study these great passages and see what is coming in world affairs, we can understand that the hope of the believer is to be with Jesus. 
We have given our hearts to him already, and he will claim us body, soul, and spirit on that day. So what should be the result of all this in our lives? What's the point? Well, Paul addresses that, as Paul always does, in a very practical way. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let's keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep at night, or sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But those, but, but since we belong to the day, then let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So here is some of that down-to-earth earth advice on how to live today. Not tomorrow, but in today. First of all, don't go to sleep. And that's a great word for Sunday morning as well, right? Don't go to sleep. But what Paul means by that is that not only to keep awake in church, but, but do not begin to dream like the world around is dreaming. Do not fall into fantasies such as the purpose of living is to try to gain wealth or fame. The purpose of life is for us to use our abilities and our time to fulfill the will of God, to find the adventure, the excitement, and the drama of that instead of wasting time in self-indulgence. Don't go to sleep, says Paul. Do not lose sight of reality. This is the hour when God is about to move on earth again. We ought to understand that and live in the light of that. Secondly, be sober. Paul's not saying we must be grim and humorless, that we must never take any recreation. He is urging that we take life seriously. Do not spend our time amusing ourselves constantly, as Paul puts it to the Ephesians. Buy up the opportunity because the days are evil, Ephesians 5.16. We have to take advantage of the contacts we have with people to help them, to reach out to them, to love, support, encourage, minister to one another. And that's what Paul's saying. Use our opportunities. Wake up to the opportunity of the day. And then finally, encourage one another. Build one another up. I think it's so easy to lose sight of God's perspective in a world that shoves God off to the side and and is always caught up in the things of the moment. It's easy to lose perspective, to think that life ought to be this beautiful and wonderful, but, it, but it's so easy to slip into the attitude of the world that protests in the face of trial. Why me? <clears throat> why, what have I done to deserve this? And this is why we need to encourage one another, another and help each other understand that, that no job is insignificant when it's done unto the Lord. Romans 14, 8, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3. No task is meaningless when it involves reaching out and help to someone else. God is not forgetful of our labors of love, Paul tells us. Scripture says, do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you don't faint, Galatians 6. And this is what we ought to be doing to one another, encouraging one another, as Paul says, to build one another up just as you are doing. Amen and God bless.